Good morning. Burr, it's cold outside in Kahului. Welcome to the winter, and uh, it is good to see everybody. Good to have you joining us from home, those who are joining us online. The title of the sermon today is The Golden Gospel. The Golden Gospel. Uh, we are spiraling very quickly into Thanksgiving and into the holiday season. It's already here and Christmas and New Year's, and this is a really busy and exciting time of the year. We'll have family gatherings, church gatherings, co-worker gatherings, all sorts of gatherings, and it is a timely word, indeed, from the Sermon on the Mount to help challenge and reorient our view of relationships for a really important time of the year where much gospel work can and does happen. And so the passage before us today is very important to that end. It finds many expressions throughout history since the time of Jesus and even predating the time of Jesus, particularly verse 12, which we call the golden rule. The golden rule. Many of you know this. Do unto others as, they would have you, as you would have them do unto you. It's one of those ideas or sayings that some version of it can be found in actually every single major world religion. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, all of these actually have Islam, have some expression of what we call the golden rule. Let me give you a little bit of our history, particularly as we zoom in on our time. In 1855, Frederick Douglass, he was a former slave who found freedom. He ran away, literally. He writes this, I love the religion of our blessed Savior. I love that religion that is based upon the glorious principle of love to God and love to man, which makes its followers... Here it, here it is, do unto others as they themselves would be done by. If you demand liberty to yourself, it says, grant it to your neighbors. If you claim a right to think for yourself, allow your neighbors the same right. It is because I love this religion that I hate the slaveholding, the woman whipping, the mind darkening, soul destroying religion that exists in the southern states of America. Close quote. 1855 is when Frederick Douglass wrote that. He wrote that as an appendix to his biography, his brief biography, because in it he, he really lays at Christianity as practice in the southern states. So he had to write an appendix, an afterword, to explain that I'm not against Christianity, but I'm against that expression of it. And so you find it here, very powerful words in his biography. 1858, we find this pop up again. President Abraham Lincoln evaluates slavery through the lens of the golden rule. He says, I quote, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. In 1859, he said this, he who would be no slave must consent to have no slave. That was after quoting the golden rule several years earlier. In 1925, switching gears a little bit, this is 
Virtue signaling began a long time before it has expressed itself today. In 1925, the Coca-Cola Company distributes gold-colored golden rule rulers to schoolchildren in the U.S. and in Canada. Just think that. Coca-Cola Company jumping on the bandwagon. Imagine your keki coming home with a rule from school that says the golden rule on it. And distributed by yours truly, Coca-Cola. We find it pop up in the formation of virtue for the civil rights movement in 1944. Martin Luther King Jr., not the reformer, the civil rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr., he won a high school speech contest about civil rights, and he says this in that speech, quote, we cannot be truly Christian people so long as we flaunt the central teachings of Jesus, brotherly love, and here it is, the golden rule, close quote. 1963, Aldous Huxley, author of The Brave New World, wrote this, I quote, In light of what we know about the relationships of living things to one another and to their inorganic environment, and what we know about overpopulation, ruinous farming, senseless forestry, water pollution, and air pollution, it has become clear that the golden rule applies not only to the dealings of human individuals and society with one another, but also to their dealings with other living creatures and the planet, close quote. And so we see environmentalists, animal rights activists, all these other associated entities after that using this idea of the golden rule applied in their mind to environmental work and animal rights to advance their cause. 1965, the U.S. government passes the Civil Rights Act, and in its closing defensive arguments, they began them by quoting none other than the golden rule. Since then, George Bush quoted it several times throughout his, preg- his present, not pregnancy, his <laughs> presidency. But hey, today, 2021, you never know what's going to happen with a pregnant, uh, pregnant president. I don't know, right? <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. All right. George Bush has quoted it throughout his presidency. Oprah has quoted it in her shows. Barack Obama often appeals to the golden rule or some form of it in speeches and interviews. And all of these, I quote different, hope you heard different strains of movement and thought. All of these hold such diverging worldviews, yet all appeal to the platitude or summation of ethics and the golden rule to guide them, yet apply it inconsistently in their practices, beliefs, and policies. Indeed, how you, your, what we could call your underlying worldviews, will directly impact how you apply this rule, how you practice what is good and valuable and what would ultimately lead to human flourishing. In today's sermon, we see Jesus doesn't offer this saying that we call the golden rule in isolation, does he? He's not just tossing out moral platitudes. Rather, this is a part of his sermon on the mount. It's a, indeed a culmination, as we're going to see. This plays a very important role in his sermon as a whole. 
And so we see even here the necessity of context. Jesus speaking a sermon, what came before, what comes after, and all of this will help us guide the application of the golden rule and everything said in it. But more importantly, into how it guides our human-to-human interactions, is this drives us to God himself. When properly understood and applied, it drives us to God himself as a source of joy, wisdom, and flourishing. And all the help we need to accomplish this is found in him. And so let's pray, and we'll get after it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this golden rule, as it is known. We thank you for this, what we're going to hear, this golden invitation And Father, I do thank you for this word. I pray that you would guide us, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text, and then that it would drive it home to our hearts to apply it in such a way that we are transformed as followers of Christ, in such a way that those who maybe have not devoted themselves wholly to Christ would find true joy, true forgiveness, true life. Would you draw them this morning? And may all of us together collectively turn from our sins and these things that rob us of our joy, that diminish, demean, and blaspheme your glory. And may we be emboldened to ask and seek and knock. And even as I am asking now, God, that you will work, would you do this, we pray. I also want to lift up my brothers and sisters at Lahaina Baptist Church. I pray for the members that you would lighten their way. I pray that they would, with new eyes, re-examine the truth and beauty of the gospel that has been proclaimed there for many years. I pray that they would seek life and light everywhere it is to be found. Father, I pray as a shepherd that you would shepherd them directly. I pray for Steve Walton, Jay Wright, and Josh Wyant to be led by your spirit to walk in truth. I pray for justice, and I pray that you would do a work there that would continue to resound for the ages. Would you guard the gospel in Lahaina? Would you guard the gospel here in Kahului Baptist? Would you guard the gospel and cause it to advance everywhere it is preached across these islands? For the praise and honor of Christ, we ask. Amen. Here's your big idea. Here it is for those who are taking notes. If I had to summarize this, kingdom citizens judge God accurately. So kingdom citizens, we've been kind of working through that this whole time. Uh, Judge God accurately. Ask persistently and live consistently in light of the righteousness of God. If I had to sum that up, that would be my crack. Maybe you can make a better summary. I invite that, uh, but this would be my summation of it. Kingdom citizens judge God accurately, ask persistently, and live consistently in light of the righteousness of God. Number one, I've got two points, the golden invitation and the golden rule. Number one, verses 7 through 11, the golden invitation. This section is actually part two to last week's part one that began in chapter seven, uh, where we are told, judge not lest you also be judged, right? That famous passage that everybody knows. This is part two about making clear 
and accurate judgments, not just about others, but about God himself. We are invited to see clearly God himself and to make an accurate judgment in light of that. We'll get there in a moment. Last week, we saw that in a very real sense, uh, we are not to make uh, ultimate judgments in terms of condemnation over others, but we all live in this normal process of making moral judgments, right? That, that if, some, if a drunk driver comes and slams into somebody and, and everybody in that car dies and the drunk driver lives, that there, there's nothing wrong with us saying that was wrong. Like, that is unjust. They should go to jail. That's a moral judgment that we can see and that they should be tried in courts and all these types of stuff, right? These are moral judgments. We do this all the time with big things. We do this all the time with little things. Should you eat this or that? Should you have fried chicken or salad, right? These are just judgment calls. We should do this. Indeed, we must do this to live wise and flourishing lives. That was last week, and now we get to do this. Really, God invites us to make accurate and wise judgments about God himself in these passages, in these verses. These verses also reflect the third section of the final movement of the sermon. So just think, so I have a sermon, I have a beginning, an introduction, I just went through that. Jesus had that introduction in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what it was? We know it famously, chapter 5, the Beatitudes. That was the introduction to his sermon. And then normally I'll assert a big idea or a thesis statement I'm going to flesh out. Jesus had that too, didn't he? Do you remember what it was? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, he ends it, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he's going to flush that out, and we'll get to that in a minute, how he's been doing that. But now this is his third movement, if you will, of his sermon, the final point of his sermon before he transitions to the concluding statements and then wraps it all up in a powerful, memorable way. This is the third and final movement of his sermon. If you will, Jesus had three points. This is the third point of his three points, and he's going to wrap it up. And then lastly, as we see, he's going to unpack in verse 12, and he's going to link it way back to verse 17 with that section, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, connecting it all to the Mosaic law and his role as wise king, teacher, and new covenant mediator. All of that's happening here. Whew, there's a lot going on here in this passage, more than just the golden rule, I assure you, and we're going to get, Lord willing, to all of it. We also find, lastly, if we were to zoom in on this section, so I'm, I'm trying to set it in context for you. If you were to zoom in just on this section alone, verse 11, uh, 7 through 11 and verse 12, you're going to find one of the most hope-filled and beautiful passages in all the New Testament as a balm for your soul this morning. Just by itself, I hope it ministers to your heart that you would take it, cherish it, and go home and really just let God take all your cares, that you would ask him persistently. And so Jesus says, here's this hope-filled, beautiful invitation. Jesus says in verse 7 to 8, May God's word never be dull to us. Lord, Spirit, make this alive to us, I pray. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What a beautiful passage. And then he connects it to the cause. Why should you ask? Why should you seek? Why should you knock? He connects it in verse 9. He gives us the reason or the argument. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? I love this argument. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Beloved, my children like to ask for things. They seem to just ask from the time they wake up. They ask for breakfast. They ask for all kind of stuff. And whenever they give breakfast, now as a dad, we do like to do dad jokes and pranks, amen? That's our right as fathers and parents. Uh, but, but generally speaking, when they ask for breakfast, I don't go get them a bunch of rocks and throw it in front of them, right? If they ask for dinner, I don't go get them the most stink, nasty, rotting mango I can find and throw it in front of them. Indeed, most of the time I have to take that away from them because they're trying to eat it. No, we don't do that. And Jesus makes this point, and he says, verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? If, if me, Pastor Randy, or just at home, I'm just known as dad. If, if me as dad, fallen, foolish, where he says evil, sinful, fallen dad gives good things to your kids, how much more? Your father in heaven, how much more will he do this? Jesus has been making this argument all along throughout the sermon on the character and the nature of God. Now, context helps us here, because if we're not careful, if we don't remember the whole sermon, this becomes our lamp and our God becomes our genie, doesn't he? Ooh, ask, and it's going to be given. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it's going to be opened. Ooh, what do I want today? Want this? Want that? Ooh, I would love that. God hooked me up. Context helps us to guard that this isn't an invitation to treat God like a genie. However, it is an invitation to be persistent, diligent, and intrusive as possible into the throne room, of, throne room of God himself. He says, come to me, ask, keep asking, seek, keep seeking, knock continuously. All of these have the idea, not that you would do it in a one time, okay, I, I asked, okay, nothing there. I looked, I didn't find it, okay. I knocked, nobody answered, oh well. No, these all carry with it the idea that you would ask and keep asking, that you would seek, and if you don't find it, that you would seek again and again, and that you would knock continuously. We all know how children look for things, don't we? You ever tell your children, hey, go, go in the living room and, and grab, bring me my phone. It can be right there in the middle of a table, and they'll walk up to it. I don't know where it is. <laughs> right? I, I, it's not there. And you say, yeah, go back and check. And they, and they go back, and, and it's not there. Jesus invites us, if you don't seek, 
If you seek and you don't find, keep seeking. Keep coming to God. Knock as if you won't leave until someone answers the door. You get to be the persistent salesman that you just wish would go away at your front door. You get to be the Mormon missionary or Jehovah's Witness at the door that you say, oh, don't answer it or whatever, right? (laughs) You get to be that person. Keep knocking until somebody answers. God is actually inviting our presence in asking. He never gets irritated. He never gets impatient. You will not bother him. You will not overwhelm him. You will not get in his way oh, you know what, son, I'm, I'm busy right now. I can't, I can't get to that daughter. You know, dad would love to hear this prayer, but, but I got to do this. God never does that. He invites you to continually come into his presence and ask. Now, we already know from chapter 6, you remember, we're not asking as if God doesn't know what we need. We already know that. We're not asking as if we are giving God new information. We also already know from the Lord's Prayer that we can come to God for big needs in our life, right? God, this is really hard. This is really hurting. I need your help. You know what those big needs are. He also tells us you can come for the little needs. Give us this day our daily bread. This daily provision, the stuff of life that we all need. We can come to him for everything. We already know that. And so it makes me wonder why here... And seven, why the invitation, again, to ask, seek, knock? Why, why, this persist, why this invitation for persistence? At least three things are operative here. I'll give you a fourth one in the final point. But for now, at least three things are operative. Number one, God desires to know us. He knows us, obviously, in his infinite wisdom, knowledge of all things, but he desires to know us in the sense of really us knowing him as we spend time in his presence, as we come to our heavenly father. God doesn't want us to just be a a relationship to him of of need. Okay, here I am. uh, Dad, I need more money. Okay, boom, bye. Dad, I I, I need more help. Can you help me? Okay, good, bye. He, He wants us to spend time in his presence. He wants us to know him. He wants us in prayer, and and this is what's happening, and he wants to actually cultivate in us a desire for the world to come. That's what's happening in prayer. I hope you realize that as you're sitting there, you're not doing normal worldly things, working or, or trying to get dressed or brush your teeth or sleeping or preparing your food or looking at worldly entertainment or, or other forms of passing the time. What's happening as you sit there is you're actually weaning yourself from the temporal worldly pleasures and God is cultivating in you a desire for the world to come, a desire desire to be in his presence. And the more you do that, you also become what we could call wholly dissatisfied, which is as you're there more and more, you're not content because you want to be there actually. You actually want his kingdom to come. You start to pray, come Lord quickly. Maranatha, God, I want to be not a long distance relationship. I want to be there in person. 
That's happening when you pray. You yearn for his presence more fully. That's one reason he invites our asking. The second reason is that these persistent requests over time help us see and they reveal if we really need them or if we just want them. And then it invites our trust in the wisdom of God. It invites our experiential trust in the wisdom of God. We're told in the Bible that when we pray, we don't always ask correctly, don't we? We're told that. We ask amiss. We don't always get our prayers right. That's why we need the intercessory work of Jesus, our high priest, and of the Holy Spirit. So we're told we don't always pray for the right things. We know from life, if you've ever been a child, you were a child yourself, or if you have children, often we ask for things on a whim, don't we? We see something, we just, can I have that? We don't really want it. We don't really need it. It's just, it's there. It seems, can I have that? Children are great askers. Adults are great askers. Made Jeff Bezos very rich, Amazon Prime. We want it now, and if we can get it now, we might actually buy it. We all know this. We want things on a whim, and getting those things aren't, is not necessarily good for us. But we also know those items that our children ask for persistently, don't they? Don't we? Something comes up, hey, Dad, can I have that? Oh, not right now, not right now. Comes up again a couple months later. Oh, not right now. Comes up again. Hmm. I might look into this. One of my children has been asking as he's going to the bathroom, don't tell him, he's distracted. He's been asking for a mouse for his birthday for a long time. I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. It's a mouse, whatever. Anyways, we note those things that our children ask for persistently over time, and so it is that God does with us. Things that we ask for persistently sometimes reveals whether we really feel like we need them and or want them, and then it invites our trust in the wisdom of God to trust him with the outcome. Will we believe our Father knows what's best for us? Now, context is always operative here. Why? Because you have to remember what Jesus said already in Matthew chapter 6. What did he implore us, tell us, command us to do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added to you. So operative already in the background of this text is that our asking is going to be in the context of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and that that will guide all of our asking. And when we ask God for these things persistently, will this advance your kingdom or your righteousness in my life or in the life of my loved ones? Then we can per do this persistently and await his response. Now, in my early years as a pastor, I had lots of things I prayed for at that time. Many of those things I still pray for but many of those things I could cross off my prayer list because God answered them. But I would pray for big things. I would pray for members, obviously. I pray for you all each and every week. I would pray that God's will would be done. If I, didn't, if I saw a name, I encourage you to do this often, if I saw a name on the member directory or roster that I did not know, I still prayed for them. 
I still prayed for them. That's possible to do, you know. There's several letters in the New Testament where Paul is praying for saints whom he had never met. So I encourage you, I would pray, God, I don't know this person. I don't know the facts of their life. I just pray that you would draw them into deeper relationship with you. And I would just pray general things over them as best as I could. And, but I, I prayed that God would save new people, that he would see sin broken and the bonds of sin broken and shattered. And, and those things all happened. But I also prayed for other things. You know what else we needed? Man, we had a lot of needs when I first became a pastor. We needed new carpet. <laughs> the carpet in this place at that time was rough. It had been here. I think it was older than me. It was in rough shape, and we need a new carpet, just something manini. It seems like of all the things we need, I knew, I knew we did not need this to do gospel work, right? But I said, God, if it would please you. I'm trying to be a good steward of everything, including the people and this beautiful campus you have given to us. If it would help the advancement of the ministry, help the advancement of the gospel, being good stewards of all that we have, God, would you provide us a new carpet? And sure enough, in time, we got a call from one of our members who was working in Wailea at the time, and we got a brand new carpet for free, 100% free. Praise God. And now this is eight years old almost now, and so we probably need a new carpet again. But, but, but it has held out. God has sustained it. Uh, we, we needed the walls painted. We had lots of needs as a building. We needed all kinds of things. I asked him for big things. I asked him for little things. He gave the big things. He gave some of the little things. Some of those things have not been answered yet, but he's given other things. He threw in things for good measure, and all of it, I'm just asking God, I want your kingdom to come. I want you to do a work here and everywhere, and God, help us to seek your righteousness as a people, and God is faithful, beloved. He is faithful. Sometimes our persistence in asking and seeking and knocking reveals, at least for us, is this something I really need and will I entrust the wisdom of God in giving it to me? The third reason that we get this invitation is a beautiful reason. I've said it in the Lord's Prayer, but it's worth saying again and again. Here's the third reason. Because God delights to hear you. God delights in his children. The main point of the argument Jesus gives here is not that he'll answer your prayers based on your persistence. Not that God will answer your prayers based on your goodness or your moral performance. The reason God answers prayer is because he is good. Because he delights in you. Because he is a loving father. He loves to show us that he heard and answered our prayers, and we should thank him and praise him when he does. I love seeing my children. They'll pray and they'll ask for things. They ask for all kinds of things, and many times it's just things related to a child, and, and, and sometimes often when God gives them, I say, okay, go, go give him thanks now. You better go say thank you. He answered that prayer. And now in Thanksgiving is coming up, and I hope if you don't have a place to go for Thanksgiving lunch that you'll come here. Even if you do have a place to go, maybe you'll consider coming here. But, but Thanksgiving lunch, that we come and we have a service where we collectively as a church just thank God 
for what he's done in our lives and in one another's lives and hear how that played out. We should thank him for these things. And as we said, God delights to hear and answer prayer. Moving on, we see that this invitation to ask persistently, as I said earlier, is a judge, is an invitation to judge God accurately. As a father, he delights to give good to his children. I like the New American Standard translation. I think it captures the Greek construction a little bit more literally than the ESV and some of the other translations. In this case, uh, the ESV translates it as good things, but in the Greek, there is no thing, word for thing, there underneath the text. It's just literally, he will give what is good to his children. That helps remind us of the orientation. We're not just talking about stuff. We're talking about whatever's good. And so when you pray and and you can expect, you can know that because God is good, he's going to answer in good. Whatever that is, yes, no, or wait, it's good. If you ask for something and he withholds it from you, it's good. If you're getting something that you didn't ask for, I'm not talking about sin, right? Don't don't hear that, or, or evil. But if you're receiving something you didn't ask for in God's wisdom and providence, it is good or will turn for your good in time. Behind this and under this promise, is the invitation to know God is fundamentally pleased with his children because of Christ. And so we should never just walk around as if God is angry with us. We should never pray and approach that throne room of grace or or maybe be repelled from the throne room of grace on the basis that we think that God is displeased with us or or, going to reject us, rather, that he would not accept us if we came back, that we're walking on eggshells with God. Beloved, if you have lived in a way this week that has displeased him, that has brought shame upon his name, he invites you with joy. Ask for mercy you'll get it. Seek grace, you'll find it. Knock, I'm going to open the door. I'm not going to shut it on you in anger. Come to me, my child, he says. And it's his delight to grant it for the sake of Christ. Beloved, God loves you. And this invitation invites you and challenges you, no matter what season of life you're in, to look at him and know he loves you and wants to hear from you. So if you've been away from the Lord for a long time and you wonder, will I be welcomed back? The answer is yes. Wholeheartedly, he will bring you back if you'll come. Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ before. Maybe you're learning what that entails. The best news, that's why it's called the golden invitation, is that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, that today God stands in Christ calling you to forsake the wisdom of the world, to forsake the pleasure of sin, to turn to Jesus, the wise Savior King, and find life. And that if you come and ask, He's going to open to you too. 
And so I pray you'll come today. And really, this invitation reflects uh, what we could call this whole sermon, the wholehearted pursuit of God that's echoed in the Old Testament. Check this out. You guys know Jeremiah 29, 13, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I want you to listen to the rest of this, verse 12 and 13. It's echoed here. Then you will call upon me. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse, 15, uh, verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 15. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is an invitation. Ask, seek, knock. This is an invitation to seek God with your whole heart. And when you do, you'll find him. You'll find him. And so it's a golden invitation. Come to him. We could sum it up if we had to sum up this one. Ask God for anything and trust his wisdom in everything. Ask God for anything you want and trust his wisdom in everything as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So let me ask you, Briefly, in application, are you seeking God with your whole heart? Or are you having a half-hearted pursuit of God? Are you seeking Him and willing to let go of all that went before and to press on to lay hold of Him? Or do you have what we could say, as we've said before, one foot in Egypt while you want to experience the joys of the promised land? Seek him with your whole heart today. Take radical measures against your sin. Leave it all behind and you will find life forevermore. That's the golden invitation. Number two, the golden rule, verse 12. This is really the summary to the whole central section of the sermon. And so I'm going to read it to you. It says, so, whatever you wish, but really a better translation would be, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Beloved, the, Jesus, he gave us that, that thesis statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. His first movement in his sermon, we could say his three-pronged approach, his three-point sermon, his first movement was to show us that greater righteousness as it deals or interacts with sin, the breaking of God's law. The second movement of his sermon started in chapter 6, where he started to deal with the greater righteousness as it pertains to external displays of religiosity, prayer, fasting, giving, alms. That's the second movement. Now he's giving us this greater righteousness as it pertains to the world's goods or life in the world, its goods and its people. And now here's the summation of it. That's how the sermon has unfolded. And if this is the case, as you have heard the high call for righteousness, that high call of wholeness, indeed we need a greater righteousness. To live out the Sermon on the Mount, you need a greater power 
and a great promise of provision. And that's exactly what you have. That's why he says, ask, seek, knock, and it's going to be opened. Therefore, and if you're going to live out this righteousness and do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets, if you're going to even hope to accomplish that, you need something greater than your own flesh and your own willpower to do it. And he gives it. Interesting, Luke's rendition of this says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Because in the ultimate scheme of things, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have all the power and promise and provision that you'll ever need. And that's exactly what we have, his promise here. Therefore, therefore, he sums up whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We see the same linking words opening and closing this section of the sermon. Did you notice the linking words? Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. He opened this section with these words, and now he closes it. They form the beginning and the end of this point. Jesus says this, you remember, very important. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You remember? We looked at what it means to abolish and to fulfill what Jesus is doing as he's interacting with Moses as a new covenant mediator. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. There's our phrase, and it pops up again in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is asserting the final, ultimate rendering of the word of God of Moses sitting in the seat of Moses as the new mediator, as the new lawgiver, as the new one who will lead the people of God to the ultimate promised land. And he gives us this golden rule, as we call it. I told you earlier, the golden rule has many reflections in world religions and different, uh, every major world religion has it. Uh, most of them, interestingly though, it's stated in the negative. Most world religions state the golden rule in the negative. Let me give you an example of that if I have it before me. Typically, it has to do with uh, whatever, you would, whatever you would not want done to you, do not do to others. It's in the negative. Jesus says it in the positive. As you would have others do to you, do to them. Jesus states it, interestingly, in the positive, whereas most world religions frame it in the negative. Now, indeed, this is really interesting. The world, actually, I read some articles on this. There's a big push to actually say the negative is actually easier to maintain harmony amongst varying viewpoints. Because it simply asks, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do that to others. In other words, you just don't have to do anything, and you'll be all right. You fulfill it, you see? But Jesus, in the positive, 
actually makes the bar higher. Whatever you would want done to you, do to others. Now, Immanuel Kant actually started to lay and attack this principle because he said, well, that assumes that, I would, that other people would like what I like. That also assumes, for instance, if a judge were sitting in a court and he had a criminal, he was trying to apply this passage unilaterally and I would say out of context, but, but if I had a criminal, that this criminal would want mercy, and if I was that criminal, I would want mercy, therefore I should not impose judgment on it. You see, he started laying an attack at the very framework of it. But we would say, no, this has to be guided by the context. As you are seeking the kingdom of God, his righteousness, that which is truly good and and beautiful as you are doing this in the power of God, led by the Spirit of God, in accordance with the Word of God, for the glory of God. Oh, beloved, this is a bedrock of Christian virtue and ethics. It will guide all of your decisions, all of life, personal, marital, business, corporate, on and on we could go in the church. And as Jesus formulates it in his sermon not ripping it out. The positive formation is impossible to fulfill without the power and presence of God's righteousness in your life and in your heart. It's impossible. That's why he could say at the beginning, and he says it at the end in its own way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never meant for this thing to be divorced from the greater righteousness theme throughout his sermon. Thus, we have the linking word, therefore, verse 12, the attachment to chapter 5, 17, and the preceding section, you need persistent prayer. You need persistent power and asking in your life if you hope to fulfill this command. And that's exactly what we have this golden invitation to fulfill the golden rule. And Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. So if you say, Pastor Randy, could you summarize what God expects of me in the Bible? Can you summarize it? Yes, so can you. It's not complicated, but it's impossible in your own flesh. Number one, what's the first part summary of the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. Application number three, as you would do and have others do unto you, do to them. The golden rule. So if you need to sum it up, love God, love your neighbor, the golden rule. Let that form your ethics and your relationships. See how that impacts your life this week. Go to work and ask, how can I show love of God here with all my heart? How can I love my coworker as myself? How can I do unto others? And see how that changes things. Do it in family gatherings. Do it with other church members. As you read motives or interactions, ooh, did they mean to do this to me? Would you want somebody to assign negative motives and intent to you? No so don't assign it to them. Give them grace in your thoughts and intentions or judging of their intentions. 
Maybe you struggle with irritability or harshness. You struggle with that? You see, it's a very simple application. Do I like it when people are irritable or harsh with me? Do I like it when they show me courtesy and respect and patience? Yes. Well, then I need to do that for my loved ones. I need to do that to those who come into contact with me. Sins committed in your life, busy seasons, on and on. Each of these things will have much food for thought if you apply these principles thoughtfully and diligently. So this week, I invite you, let us hear the words of Jesus and the summation of his final movement in the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word, and indeed even the brief time we spent this morning on the Sermon on the Mount and its concluding section, it is not sufficient to mine all the truth here for us, all the instruction for our soul, all the nourishment that is to be found here. And so would your spirit allow us to meditate on this as we go, illuminate these things to our hearts and to our minds, convict us of where we have fallen short, and draw us into greater experience of your life this week. And as I pray, I lift up those that I appeal to, those who are distant from you, those who are considering the call to follow you. Would you move in them now, we pray, in this time of response, for the glory of your name we ask. Amen.